Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the first ever Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine. In the background here we have Alan Hyde, the audio guru, and so if you've got any complaints about the audio, please see him. Complaints about everything else can come to me. Thank you. So, these new talk shows, we're going to be doing a series of them and we're going to do nine this year and we're going to be dipping into the world of motorsport from Formula One to sports cars and even motorbikes. And along the way, we're going to have some absolutely fantastic guests for you. So, but before that, a little bit more detail on what these are. Some of you will probably be thinking, well, this is just a podcast. You're right. It's a podcast. It's a talk show. It's a chat show. It's ultimately a non-live radio show, which means that we record them. Alan takes out all my mistakes and then they go up online. Yes, they go up online. If you're listening to this, you obviously know how to get it. But for future reference, you can listen to them on SoundCloud under the Royal Automobile Club. And you can even watch us on YouTube and again, search for the Royal Automobile Club. You can get to them through the royalautomobileclub.co.uk website, and I'm sure you'll find them on their Facebook and Twitter profiles. Now, I mentioned some great guests this year, and we are certainly going to start in that manner. Next to me, I have Nick Fry, the former CEO of Honda Formula One, and Ross Braun, the mastermind behind eight Formula One World Championships. Why, you ask? Well, the reason behind that is at the end of Honda F1 in 2008, a new team was born, Braun GP, and these two were the masterminds behind that. Today, we're going to talk about the demise of Honda, the rebirth of the new team under Braun GP, and those two amazing world championships for the constructors and the drivers in 2009. Nick and Ross, a very warm welcome to the Royal Automobile Club at Wood Woodcut Park. Um, very kind of you to join us. I know you're both extremely busy, and uh, just been hearing from Ross, obviously you only got back to the UK yesterday. So uh, very kind of you to join us for this chat show. Um, I'm going to, obviously we're here to talk about 2009, but I wanted to wind things back a little bit. And I've, uh, because this is a sort of talk show, um, I've printed off some photos. <laughs> it makes, it will make more sense later, hopefully. Um, I've got an image here, and this is the launch of your 2008 car. Ross, you're quite new to Honda. Um, how much work went into this car? Because I've been reading that you know, you arrived and you, the, the regulations were going to change at the end of 2008, and there was this big opportunity, as you saw it, to put all the focus on 2009. But surely there must have been quite a lot of work on this car. Well, um, I joined at the end of 2007, and um, the, the team had been through quite a difficult spell. But I think they'd recognised some of the thing by themselves, they'd recognised some of the areas they had to focus on. Uh, I came to team with my ideas from uh, Ferrari, previous team, and you know, tried to steer them in, in directions. But the fact was the car, you know, cars, are, cars are conceived over several years, in fact, but certainly they're, you know, they, they come into fruition. They start to come into focus the year before they're used, the year before they're raced. So this car was really um, conceived and developed during 2007. Um, I think there'd been uh, a recognition of the areas that say that needed to be improved. So the car was 
was a step fo- forward over what had uh, been before. I think one of the big things I was able to bring to the program was some references because uh, at this stage, I think it's uh, fair to say there was some disagreement between the chassis group and the engine group over their um, contribution to the poor performance that had gone on before. And I think also there was a belief, certainly from Japan, that there was some sort of silver bullet that I could bring to a team and just just apply and there would be a step change in the performance and that's not the case uh, for one's pretty challenging complex business. And it's as much about culture and philosophy and approach as it is about some unique idea or some unique solution. So I think the fact I was able to bring a reference and say to various groups, yeah, I don't think this is good enough or this is probably compares to what I'm used to and make sure the attention got focused on the areas that needed to be um, improved. I mean, we talk about the engine. There was certainly a belief in Japan that the engine was competitive. And when I arrived and I saw the numbers and made the comparisons, it wasn't. So uh, at least there was then a recognition of what needed to be done. So, um, and that process started pretty much. Uh, I think there was a there was a lot of opinion in the team about what needed to be done, and I just helped to uh, s- solidify that opinion just to make sure that um, uh, clarify the situation from what I knew from my previous teams, where the references were, how good the engines were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera we could at least start to focus then on what were the important things. As you said, 2009 was a great opportunity. And once we got 2008 running, um, my priority, quite frankly, was to then get the design resource, the development resource, the engine group, everyone focused on 2009, uh, because that was where I felt we could make the step change. Now, you were um, obviously there before, and how was it, first of all, dealing with Honda, you know, Ross alluded to, to it there. Um, and also, what's it, try and explain what it's like to go racing with this car, knowing that really you're all your attention's on next year. Is it quite a frustrating thing from a competitive standpoint? I think um, uh, I was there from 2002, and I think the two, two observations. One is, uh, as Ross has just said, I don't really think we ever really understood why we were good when we were good and why we were poor when we were poor and even when we had you know obviously a, a decent season in 2004 um the car just works pretty much straight away and uh, it was a it was a nice little car it was very benign the drivers liked it and we 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 did very well uh, a long way behind ferrari but um you know better than uh, uh, all the others um, 2006, obviously, we managed to win a race, but uh, after uh, changing the wheelbase of the car. But again, I, I think Ross's point about really not having any decent references um, is is a quite correct. Um, and Ross is again correct that uh, there was, you know, at times almost open warfare between the uh, the, the chassis team and the engine team. Um, we all believed that the engine was poor. Uh, I think the indications from the other teams and from the FIA, such that you know, w- we got any, was that the 
the engine was you know, far from the most powerful, but also you know, quite difficult to drive. And I think when Rubens came from Ferrari, he made some, some very good observations about uh, our engine versus the, um, uh, the Ferrari engine. Um, but we had a good team. And, and the thing that um, uh, Honda was outstanding at was investing in the right things. And you know, Honda's a great engineering company. And when we went and asked for you know, a new wind tunnel, uh, engineering facilities, when we wanted uh, very expensive machine tools, they always said yes. So I think you know, Ross will confirm uh, when he arrived, the thing we did have uh, was quite good facilities, so we had a good sort of basis to uh, to, to, to work on. Um, I think that you know, 2008 wasn't really too much of a frustration because, you know, I wouldn't like to say we threw away the year, but we knew it was a, a building year. And I remember, you know, when uh, Ross and I were discussing him joining the team, it was really, well, 2008, we'll kind of start to get our act together. You know, 2009, you know, put in some decent results, and then maybe the year after that, we'll, you know, have an opportunity at, um, you know, doing a bit better and, and, and winning races. So there was always a, a three-year plan. As it happened, things turned out uh, completely differently. Um, I think the <coughs> the team generally was always well motivated, um, and it is it's interesting that the, you know, the people who weren't very good in 2002 are exactly the same individuals in the team uh, that uh, did very well in 2004, that won the first race in 2006, and then went on to, you know, winning you know, consistently, uh, you know, in the last uh, in the last few years. So it's the same idiots that uh, were the uh, uh, the failures at Honda that are now the uh, uh, the very successful people in uh, in Mercedes. Yeah, uh, picking up on some of the next points, I think it's quite correct. The team have built a great facility and had great people I mean one of the things that attracted me to the team was in in from my perspective it was underperforming in terms of results with what was a very good budget and a very good facility so there wasn't there was a lot that was right within the team a lot of very good people and, and it's one of the things that I always found more fun and more rewarding to to go to teams and use the ingredients they have to to, to become successful and there were some great and still are some great people in the team it wasn't there was no necessity to go in and clear everyone out and start again you know the chief race engineer Andrew Shovlin then who's a junior race engineer is now the chief race engineer now and a lot of the manufacturing people are still there now and they've got three world championships behind them so um, yeah the core of it was very very good and the Difficulty was the lack of cohesion between uh, Japan and, and the UK. And as Nick said, they'd slipped into this blame culture, which had to be sorted. And um, and and I, you know, Nick will recall, I, I discussed with Nick and then discussed with Japan joining a team. And the vital thing for me was carte blanche to be able to try and control and influence Japan as much as the UK. So the whole thing, we tried to pull together a cohesive program. Um, and it was a car, it wasn't an engine, it wasn't a chassis. It was one entity, a car. And uh, that had to be the mantra for us to succeed. Which was ironic given what happened obviously in 2009 and the other engine coming in. Um, it, yeah, it did. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but if you look at what Mercedes have now done, which is, you know, the originates from this team, it's, it's a car. 
and uh, immediately Mercedes got involved. The key thing was to make it one team, uh, chassis and engine. And with the new rules that were then coming along in 14, that was even more vital. There was a really comprehensive integration of the group, and it was a it was a group that succeeded, not an engine succeeding or a chassis succeeding. But that's another story, because of course when we got involved with Mercedes, McLaren were the key partners. Um, so, well, uh, just uh, just briefly before we before we move on, do you think you would have after your very successful spell at Ferrari, would you have gone to any other team apart from Honda? Because you would you obviously been saying they had the great facilities, they were underperforming, they had great people. Well, I, I paid him the most. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there we go. <laughs> For all you wondering. <laughs> yeah, that helped. Uh, but, seriously, <laughs> it, it, had, it had great facilities and a great budget, and those are two things. That, you know, particularly facilities is difficult to take time. You decide you're on a wind tunnel. It's a three or four year program to get a wind tunnel. And um, Honda had a very good wind tunnel at Brackley. And they had the budget. Um, and that's a vital ingredient as well. I mean, budgets can aren't uh, automatic success, but nobody really wins win world championships consistently without a good budget. Um, and yeah, in a way, we were the exception in 2009, but the investment for 2009 had come prior to that. So, so for sure, um, Honda was probably the only team that I would have been interested in in. Um, coming back into Formula 1 4 and I was very glad I did. I don't know if you'll remember this uh, Ross but uh, end of 2007 uh, after a number of telephone calls uh, through the year really uh, Ross eventually agreed to come round to um, my house at Woodstock and uh, I remember to this day Ro Ross came in and we sat in the dining room and Ross said look uh, you know I'm sorry to be presumptuous but I've, I've only got three questions uh, not sure you remember this and uh, the first question was uh, what facilities have you got? And I'd obviously I couldn't take him to the the team to show him round. It would have been a bit obvious. So I I prepared a, a spreadsheet which has you know the detail and we've got this wind tunnel and we've got all these machine tools. So I passed it over to Ross and said, well you can't have this, but read this and this is what we've got. And he went through it and obviously appeared to be satisfied. And the second question was, uh, you know, tell me about the people you've got. And I had an organisation chart, and we went through Andrew Shovlin and Rob Me Ron Meadows and Jock Clear and all the other guys. Um, and Ross appeared relatively satisfied with uh, with that too. And the third question, as Ross has just said, was, well, what's the budget? And I uh, I uh, told him what the budget was. And uh, I think then, Ross, uh, you said, well, I've heard it from you but now we need to hear it from the owners. And I think we got on planes the following week, different planes to Japan. And we spent uh, a couple of days in Japan, didn't we, if I remember rightly. And so uh, he heard it from the, the horse's mouth. And uh, well, I guess the rest Amazing. is history. Yeah, the, uh, I'm going to sort of uh, go from one Honda meeting to another. And I've, I've done a bit of maths. And that's always a dangerous thing. But I think I've got this right. Uh, today, which is Wednesday, um, if we rewind eight years, three months and 18 days, it takes you to the 28th of November 2007, which I don't know if you remember, but it was the day, I think, when you both went to Heathrow to meet all the Honda executives. And this is the end of 2008, season's finished, and I think you knew there were going to be some cuts, um, but they then dropped this bombshell that they wanted to put out of Formula One with immediate effect and literally turn the lights off at the factory. You, Nick, what was, it must have been a huge shock. 
Yeah, I went through my diary actually, Ed. I'm, 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 oh, I'm, no. uh, I'm very all, all impressed actually. Right. No, your oh, son is exactly right. Oh, right. I'm, oh, I'm, okay. I'm super impressed <laughs> with you. It was the uh, the 28th of uh, November. Now we'd, um, you know, obviously Lehman Brothers had gone down uh, in September. I think everyone knew the situation was 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 poor, um, and we prepared, you know, for that eventuality. And and you know, Ross and I had spent a long time with the finance director and the others going through. Uh, you know what we could cut back and you know we 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 put together some budgets which you know cut back by I think one of them was about a quarter and the other one was 40 percent so they were large amounts of uh, of money Um, I have to say uh, we weren't expecting you know what happens and we 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 got called Ross and I to uh, see our our boss at the time who's a gentleman called Mr. Shima who was you know someone we I think both got on with very well and uh, uh, we went to a not a great hotel. Uh, I'm not sure it's even there now. Called the Renaissance. Um, and I remember we went into a, a fairly small room, and uh, a Mr. Shima. You know, the thing about Honda is that they they, are, they have got emotion and they've got passion and they've got passion for racing. And uh, Mr. Shima was clearly you know very distressed. And uh, you know, I do remember he you know he went through speaking very quietly that. Uh, you know, the financial situation was was as it was. Uh, American dealers were refusing to take cars into stock. They were having to consider um, you know, stopping plants working, which you know, eventually the, uh, the the Honda plant at Swindon, I think, was closed for six months. Um, and that the board had decided that they couldn't possibly continue you know, doing something as you know outward facing and as showy as uh, as Formula One. So um, kind of that was that, and and that was said with you know tears in his eyes I mean he was uh, genuinely uh, extremely upset and it was obviously a a big shock to uh, to to both Ross and I Uh, we then went through to a a larger conference room where there were I would say probably 20 Honda people weren't they that obviously prepared uh, you know all sorts of human resources and uh, what have you and other people for the discussion and uh, you know after some discussion uh, you know it was agreed that you know, obviously, one couldn't just shut down the team. Um, that you know, we would have you know a month to start with to try and find new owners, uh, to try and sell the team, to try and find another way of continuing, and, and that's the the job well, that we got given. I think we persuaded them, didn't we? Because their their view was that we could go back and turn the lights off, as you said. I, w- I was being kind yeah. there. <laughs> 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 they did say go shut it down. Ross is quite right. I mean, it, that um, is, and we just said. Give us some breathing space. Can we try and sell the team? Can we try and do something with it? And they were very, very skeptical, uh, almost scoffing at the idea that there was any way forward because well, there was any value in it. I mean, I d- yeah, and and you know, it was the situation was so dire overall, not just with the team, but overall, that that I think they just um, and to their credit, they gave us enough. A modest amount of money to carry on through the winter, because as you know, the procedures for making um, uh, people redundant there's um, uh, consultations got to go through. You know, it's not a you can't just turn everyone out on the street these days. Quite rightly, so you know there was a there was a procedure we had to notify the people. I think it's three months, isn't it? Or can yeah, you yeah. So there was there was some uh, by default some breathing space, and we said just give us that time. Let us carry on working in that time. And I think we managed to persuade them to put another two million in to keep us going. You have to pay the wages anyway, but a couple of million just to keep going for that couple of months. So there was still 
if there'd been no car available at the end of that period, then there definitely was no future for the team. There couldn't be because you wouldn't have a car to go racing with. So we did manage to persuade them, and to their credit, um, they they were a bit shocked at the request, but and because uh, they really did think, go back and turn the lights off because this is it. It's it's amazing to think now, certainly with with recent events in Formula One and you hear some teams not paying the bills and things like that. You know, Honda, who are in such a desperate situation, agreed, you know, to keep the wages coming through despite the fact they wanted to just turn the lights out and be done with it. I mean, hats off to them from my perspective. Yeah, I, th I think that, um, you know, Honda's a, a good company. Uh, there is, you know, no doubt it's a great engineering company and it's also one with, you know, strong, strong values. And, uh, you know, they did give us a chance and, uh, you know, we'll be forever grateful for that. Um, uh, but it was a tough call. I mean, the uh, the following you know, month or so, I think between Ross and I, we we saw every um, chancer, charlatan. Uh, well, it was it was going to be my next question. Actually, was you know, there's I've read varying reports of you know a hundred people who wanted to buy it, or fifty, or ten. I mean, obviously there were the chances. How many realistic? opportunities were there because there's not there's not that many people in the world who want to buy a Formula One team whether it's a manufacturer or a private equity I, th I think uh, Ed you know the reality is you know there, w there wasn't anyone um, in reality which is why we ended up you know I don't think it was in Ross's, Ross's mind or my mind in our wildest dreams that we would end up owning a Formula One team it just ended up happening by default I mean we we probably ended up um, speaking to about 20, I would say, um, different groups of people. But there wasn't anyone there who was really... Uh, Honda you know, didn't want to just hand it to anyone because it would have looked even worse then. I mean, shutting it down was one thing, but handing it on to someone else who was then going to you know, not look after it and it was going to shut down thereafter was probably even a worse reflection on Honda. And they were very, very conscious of that. And you know, a, a lot of people we we saw were dreamers who had no real access to the money, or you know, people who saw it as a potential opportunity, but really had, you know, no intention of of continuing the thing, or people who you know felt that they could get money out of Honda and or split up the assets or do whatever. So I think the the reality is there's, you know, we spent an enormous amount of time over the uh, the whole of January trying to uh, to, to to find suitable people and. Uh, you know, there wasn't anyone that uh, there was that was um, the, com the Honda were comfortable with at all, and there was no one. I don't think that Russ and I were particularly comfortable with because you know we would have had to be sold with the team. I mean, that, that they they wanted someone obviously to run it for them, and uh, you th <coughs> you tend to think in Formula One you've seen everything, and then suddenly we saw a whole we saw the rest of the world if you like, and we had several crooks and fraudsters go quite a long way. I mean, one guy flew in with his helicopter, the whole thing, and uh, you know, wanted Nick and I to go for dinner with him in the Ritz, and he's had a house near Harrods and all this sort of stuff. And he it, it was a fraudster, he's in jail now. Um, the helicopter so was was so big that even though we had a helipad, it wouldn't fit on the helipad, so we had to clear a car park. And everyone was very determined to find out where the helicopter came from, and it was uh, it was registered in San Marino or somewhere, and no one could identify, you know, from where it came. 
So what's what's that film with Nicolas Cage in it when he when he rents a private jet and it's newly painted and he's he's just painted on this sort of this fake company logo on the side and as it takes off you see the paint peeling back to reveal the sort of the, the rental airline. <laughs> it reminded me a bit. Well, of that. it was it was almost like that and um, yeah, no, and we we discovered by because obviously anyone who was seriously interested, um, Nick and and you know the. Uh, our legal director and finance director got involved in checking their their background, and we discovered this guy was a crook just before Christmas. And I remember sitting in Nick's office and ringing him and saying, "We just had a report from our investigators to tell us that you're a convicted fraudster and you've changed your name." And he said to us, "How much will it cost for that report to disappear?" Really? And those are the sort of people it's, that this is like this is like a thriller novel I, I mean I knew today was going to be exciting but it gets His, better and better when we, we firstly there was a huge denial um and then um, when we, we, we were, again, being very sort of politically correct about this, and we said we found out things that, uh, you know, would prevent us continuing with the conversation. And uh, he, he blustered and uh, said it was outrageous and uh, what have you. So then eventually we had to tell him what we'd found. And he had been um, uh, selling hereditary uh, British titles to uh, Americans. Um, and I got convicted in, in America of... Uh, it's a niche of, of doing it's that, not, which uh, clearly yeah. profitable, obviously. But uh, um, and then, uh, as Ross said, when he, um, uh, you know, when, when, he, when we told him that we'd found this particular thing, he said, "Well, I, I was very young at the time, which wasn't didn't seem to be much of an excuse." Um, and then the next question was, uh, "You know, does Honda know?" And so we said, "Well, they don't because it's Christmas Eve and we've only just got the report." And well, and as Ross said, "Is well, how much does it cost to?" Uh, you know, keep it from them, and uh, no, it's you know, <laughs> we, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that, and uh, you know, cheerio, goodbye, and uh, as Ross said, he uh, uh, he got banged up sometime later, so uh, I'm not sure where he is now. Probably, I think Her he Majesty's. Yeah, uh, I think he did. I think he. Uh, I mean, he had a huge property empire in London, uh, which he he showed us, and and we had people look at uh, that side, and it did exist, but he he got all the finance for it um, fraudulently from the banks, the Irish banks. Uh, which is where the Irish banks obviously got into trouble in that period. So, but anyway, there were there were a number of people like that that just came out of the woodwork, and and luckily we had enough wits about us to to spot them eventually. Maybe we didn't spot them straight away, but um, and you know Honda had given us the opportunity, but authority to sell the team. And as Nick said, the last thing we needed was to sell the team to somebody who was unsuitable. Um, who could um, uh, cause a lot more problems than, than just shutting it down. So it was quite an interesting period and quite an educational period and uh, in the middle of one of the worst financial crises in recent history. So um, it was all uh, all good fun. <laughs> in, in hindsight, probably. I think the... Yeah. Um, obviously, you've got all this going on. You're trying to sell the team. When you're also, you know, you're trying to keep everyone um, sort of protected at the factory and you know trying to keep them working on the next next year's car um, you've also had to, you also had to tell Rubens and Jensen as well um, so firstly what was how did you keep them from disappearing did they want to go and find an, another car I guess by then there were no seats left so they were in it in it with you weren't they well I guess in some ways that was a slightly fortunate thing it was so late 
that there wasn't any good opportunity. And um, uh, Rubens wasn't committed at that stage. We were still um, undecided about whether Rubens was going to stay with the team. Jensen was. He had a new contract. So, um, which gave him some financial security because obviously Honda, as Nick said, are an honourable company and they would have met their commitments. But they... Um, but then not driving would have been a serious issue for him. So, uh, but fortunately, he didn't really have any options. And um, you know, as things evolved and developed, then Rubens became clearly the best choice because we we operated on a pretty tight budget in 2009, and the last thing we needed was uh, to have um, cars broken or damaged. Or, I mean, we ran on two two chassis, two monocoques only for quite a large part of the season. And you know, we'd had, if we'd had one of the drivers break a monocoque, we would have been in serious trouble. So, you know, we opted in the end to uh, ask Rubens to stay, which I think was a great decision by the team because he was perfect. And um, uh, so, it's fate really that kept the two drivers in the team. They had no choice. We operated on a laughably small budget. I mean, we, we got from uh, the beginning of the year um, until the, the German Grand Prix, so it's sort of after the shutdown, uh, summer shutdown periods. And I remember our, our total expenditure had been um, just over £600,000, which I suspect some of the other teams were spending twice as that you know, per race. Um, and we had to have, because we, we didn't have any money. And, you know, obviously the money that we did have through sponsorship and uh, what have you, you know, we didn't know how long we were going to have to operate uh, on virtually no money. So anything we had, we just tried to eke out as, as long as possible. And it wasn't until the others started to catch up a bit. I remember towards the end of the year, we opened up the taps a little bit to mm. uh, have some improvements towards the end of the year. But basically, uh, you know, what we had at the beginning of the year, we had to race with uh, and, we, and we did without things that some of the other teams had, like Kurs, just to keep the whole thing simple. But uh, um, my overriding memory really was everyone mucked in, you know, right from the start after you know, Honda told us the bad news and then we told the staff uh, uh, the following week. There was a real sense of, you know, backs against the wall and we've got no option, it's all too late, so, you know, we can't do anything else, so let's just sort of bash on and everyone just got stuck in and, uh, you know, everyone did their job extremely well and, and clearly, you know, Ross uh, spent uh, the vast majority of his time, you know, making sure that the car was the best it, it possibly could be and, Myself and the finance guys and everyone else did the best we could to to get the sponsorship that we did and uh, uh, you know eke the money out. But I think that it was a really outstanding job from the drivers to the mechanics to the people in the factory to the uh, uh, you know the finance people and everyone else. Everyone really pulled their weight and so there was a real sense of you know we're in this together. When did you decide to do it yourselves and and rebrand it? By it. Was it a, was it a sudden realization? Well, hang on, we we have to do this now. This is the only option. Or was it something that kind of grew over time as you thought it was a better and better idea? Well, I know at the very beginning when when Honda um, told us they were stopping, we mooted the idea around. You know, we we chucked the idea around. I said, well, no, that wouldn't make much sense. You know, it's not that's not very oh, sensible. That that's not a very idea. sensible <laughs> thing to do. And so that's when we set about trying to find a, a buyer. And then it got to the point where we thought, and in that process, to be honest, we started to understand more about what could or couldn't be done because 
you know, we were discussing things with the Honda board about what sort of um, uh, structure would be possible going forward. Because, of course, Honda had a fairly major liability with all the people that made redundant. Not making them redundant um, saves them a lot of cash. Um, but, you know, could that... Yeah, could we restructure it? So that gave us some funds to run the year on. And as those ideas developed, and they probably developed as much because we were trying to put together viable um, options for, for purchases, I guess our realization that maybe it could work grew to a point where uh, uh, Nick might have a, a note of it, but at some point we sat down and said, why don't we go for ourselves? Because um, it's... Uh, it, it's really looking like the only option because the, the challenge, difficulty for me personally, and, any, and most of the people in the team is the people we were seeing to buy the team are not people we wanted to work for. Um, so even if we'd sold the team, we wouldn't want to work for them. Yeah, and of course, because um, you were ultimately looking for your boss, weren't you? And yeah. Potentially, yes. And, and we just, you know, there weren't, you looked at these characters and you thought, well, maybe it could save a team, but there's not someone I want to work for. Uh, so you know that that was the the dilemma. Um, but when was it, Nick? I, I, I think the, the the reality is that uh, you know during the course of January uh, of two thousand and nine, it became fairly clear that there there wasn't a, a fairy godmother out there. That everyone we had uh, you know met was dreadful to varying degrees um, and didn't really have the right aspirations for the team. So I, I think it. it, it just gradually dawned on us that you know the only way we were going to get out of this problem was was doing it ourselves, and um, uh, you know it was a uh, I think it was a it was a big decision, and certainly uh, I remember Mrs. Fry and Mrs. Braun uh, not being impressed at all. I think they 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 both felt that uh, um, we were going to end up in caravans or a tent for the rest of our lives because this was all going to go horribly wrong, and and you know they were probably right. Um, well, I know my wife said, "Look, you can do it, but don't mortgage the house." And that was basically what the condition was. So it's, I mean, I'm it's sure very easy to, 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 to look back and, you know, on occasions you get you know, people say, oh, you were lucky, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we make light of it now because it all worked out, you know, brilliantly. And uh, we, we hit a whole bunch of home runs. But, uh, you know, it was more than likely to go the other way. Um, I think all the evidence would suggest that this wasn't going to work. And, uh, you know, what happened subsequently um, was really a, a dream come true. And we took a huge risk. And I think had it gone wrong, you know, we would have been, I think, individually in, you know, not the best shape, to say the least. So I think it would have been, uh, you know, really life changing, but in the opposite direction. And we threw the dice and uh, decided to go for it. And, uh, you know, uh, but then there was a, the next challenge really was you know, talking to a, uh, a Japanese company about what was essentially a management buyout because, you know, the minute that you, if in, in reality, declare your hand that you know, you'd like the company, then, you know, you're on the other side of the, the, the negotiating table. Effectively, you were not buying yourselves, but in, you were kind of sitting on both sides of the fence, weren't you? must be quite a difficult position. Yeah, we, 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 were, we were in a difficult position. Um, however, I think the relationships were pretty good. Um, but Honda did, you know, the, the the correct things. You know, they got their accountants to uh, to take a good look at, uh, you know, the the numbers that we come up with. And uh, in fact, they 
they they felt you know it could have been you know, a lot worse than uh, than the we portrayed that the the liabilities for closing down the team if if it had gone that way were significantly more than than we felt they were so if i think you know we we, we played a straight bat and i think uh, you know they looked at the alternatives and they came up with the uh, exactly the same conclusion so i think by the by the time we got to the beginning of february I think it was in everyone's minds that there, there really wasn't another alternative. That uh, you know they were either going to offload the team onto uh, onto the management, uh, or you know it, it would have gone under. And, and going under at that stage was uh, you know it would have been a bitter blow for the British government as well. I mean you've got to consider there were 700 people there. You know, after it came out that the team, you know, Honda, were going to pull out, I mean, it was on the front page of the uh, the Times newspaper the following Saturday. I mean, it was a, a real bellwether for the decline of the UK. Everything was going pear-shaped. And now, you know, this very prestigious Formula One team uh, with, with huge resources and a major car company was, was going under as well. So it was really seen as something which was uh, an indicator of the way the UK was going. So I think everyone's uh, intense, you know, whether it be the staff, whether it be Honda, whether it be management, was, whether it be the government, was we've got to find a way of, uh, of solving this because it's, uh, you know, not something any, anyone wanted to happen. No, I'm going to move on to sort of to happier times um, because I've, I've obviously we've been talking so much about, about the disaster that was the end of 2008. Um, I'm going to start uh, looking, we're now going to sort of move into the 2009 season and all the success that, that came with it. But um, we we touched on Rubens and Jensen. Um, we've got a couple of photos here. The first one is with both of you with Rubens and the 257 Grand Prix from 2008 season. Um, and then also just before Brazil at the end of the year when he did finally clinch the championship. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the two drivers because Ross, I mean, you know, you knew Rubens so well from Ferrari. Um, Jensen, I think you were undecided on, I think, in terms of until you actually got into a team with him there, you didn't know how good he was. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the two? Uh, yeah, I mean, Rubens, um, I like a lot and uh, he's very talented. He's very quick, actually. I think it's easy to underestimate because he spent a lot of his time driving with Michael Schumacher, that, uh, how quick Rubens is. And he's very, he, he, he gives very good feedback. He's got a very good um, technical brain and uh, um, quite clear about um, what he feels and direction and so on. So he's a good driver to work with. Um, he has a Latin temperament, which came out occasionally, but you know that's good fun most of the time. Um, and he's a great race driver. I mean, he has very good feel for races and uh, um, doesn't um, uh, rarely drops the ball. So he uh, he was definitely a real asset to the team. Jensen, I think, if I may say, the first year I was there, 2008, he, he may have been a bit intimidated by me because. I came to a team that he'd been in and become very comfortable with for a number of years, and I came along, and he made a few mistakes, and I can and it was unusual for him because, um, you know, a lot of the guys in the team would say to me, you know, that's not Jensen, you know, he's, uh, and I could see he was clearly very talented, um, but the first year he was a bit, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to say unsettled, or there were there were a few occasions when. Um, he did drop the ball and I think it, it may well have been just you know, me joining a team, him feeling a little bit intimidated and and um, but then you know you have to say in 2009 
first half was tremendous. Um, I think he felt the pressure a little bit then of of being a championship favourite and being and leader of championship. And the second half um, got a little bit wobbly, and then he pulled it all together at the, at the end of the year. And um, you know world champion and deserve, deserved it so very very talented driver um uh extremely talented the it's, i was i was reading that actually just before this race in brazil i don't know whether it was to you nick or to you ross that jensen was talking to one of you and he said don't worry it's going to be okay we're going to sort it this race well he certainly was said it, it to me i don't know it? if he said it to you nick but he'd had a bit of a wobbly practice because um i think Vettel had gone out in Q Q one, which we were in the first qualifying in Q three, sorry. Which we Q one. Q one. First qualifying fishing for too long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Definitely. I don't think that's uh, I don't think I don't think you can go fishing for too long. But anyway, he um Vettel had dropped out in the first qualifying, it was wet, and we thought, well that's good. And then Jensen proceeded to drop out in second qualifying, so I mean he was barely in front of Vettel in the on the grid. Um but he did come to me and said, look, uh, I've got my head together for tomorrow. Don't worry, I'm going to sort it. And he drove a tremendous race, um, fabulous race. And uh, so to be frank, in contrast to some of the races he had before that in the second half of the year where, you know, Rubens won a couple of races in the second half of the year and showed the car in maybe not everywhere, but was still competitive enough to win races. But... Um, you know, Jensen, I think, felt the pressure a little bit. First time he'd ever been in that situation. And uh, you can't underestimate the pressure that um, drivers experience in those circumstances. So, as I say again, to his credit, he pulled it all together and um, got the job done. Yeah. So it is such an amazing story. Uh, Nick, I'm gonna, it's quite, quite an odd photo, this. Um, so this is the, your cars having just arrived in Australia. And obviously, by this time, they did have engines. Um, but what I quite like about this photo is it's got a little sign on the on the cover of the car saying "No engine fitted." Um, engine was obviously a big, big problem for you both because Honda was obviously going to do the engine. It was the Honda team. You had an offer from Ferrari, if I'm right, and uh, also an offer from McLaren and therefore Mercedes engines. I mean, it, I always thought the f sort of Formula One paddock was known as the Piranha Pool. What, you know, why, why, were it, why was everyone offering you engines? They were. They were. They were. Very kind to us, um, you know. After the um, the fateful uh, meeting with Honda at the end of November, the the following week, um, there was a uh, a team meeting uh, led by uh, Luca de Montezemolo, and you know, Ross and I had elected to uh, tell Luca ahead of telling the other teams because he was the chairman of the, uh, the the team group at that stage. And uh, the meeting was at the Browns Hotel in London uh, the, the Wednesday after Honda had told us they wanted to pull out. And uh, uh, Ross and I uh, were invited to his, uh, his suite. And, uh, you know, I remember to this day, obviously, he had a, a tremendous relationship with Luca. But Luca sat there and said, look, we don't want you guys to, um, to go down. You know, it's a really bad sign for Formula One. And, you know, if you need an engine, you know, you can have a Ferrari engine brackets and it'll cost you 8 million euros but uh, that was a, a different story but he was kind enough to offer it wasn't a Cosworth uh, DFV price was it a, uh, <laughs> an engine just you know out, out the get go and uh, 
we told the the other teams um, that, that that Honda was pulling out, and there was tremendous sympathy. I, you know, it was a it was a meeting where everyone was really down in the dumps because everyone was feeling the pressure. Obviously, at that time, there was a, a lot of argy bargy between uh, you know the teams and the FIA and um, uh, and Bernie, and we were all trying to get on with each other, you know, very well and. You know, Mercedes uh, came along very shortly thereafter and, uh, and made exactly the same offer. Um, you know, the simplest solution would be to have continued with the Honda engine, but Honda, you know, really did feel that you know, they were out. You know, they were going to they were going to go. They weren't going to uh, uh, lend us an engine or uh, sell us an engine. Um, and I think the reality is that uh, uh, the, the reason we went with the Mercedes engine was that uh, it fitted better. Um, I remember the. Uh, the, the Ferrari engine, the mounting points were fundamentally different from the Honda. Um, we also did feel, I think it's fair to say, that Mercedes was, you know, let us win, let, let us beat McLaren if there was an opportunity to do, to do so. I think possibly, Ross will know better than I, but uh, Ferrari probably would have uh, kept us in our place. Um, what would have happened had we had a Ferrari engine, who knows? But uh, uh, the Mercedes engine certainly fitted better. But, you know, again, Ross will... Uh, uh, give the detail, but you know the Mercedes engine fitted, but it was still uh, half an inch higher than the Honda engine. So the centre of gravity at the back of the car and the uh, where the, the final drive was was you know a lot higher than it should have been. And you know even at that stage, um, you know we didn't really feel that we were going to be you know, championship contenders. Uh, we we had a car that had been kind of cobbled together in a a relatively short period of time and. Uh, you know, the engine fitted, but only just, and there were lots of compromises as a result of that. So, you know, when we actually did go testing, um, you know, we thought we would be in a reasonable position, but uh, to, to, to finish the tests, you know, fastest by a margin. And I think, uh, you know, uh, the other teams felt that uh, we were probably running lights. And what have uh, we done? <laughs> the, 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 the reality was, I think we were sandbagging and trying to get the th get, keep the thing as slow as we possibly could. The, uh, d now, uh, Ross, I, I think I, it was in motorsport, and I think it was quite recently that Martin Whitmarsh, uh, we, Ro uh, Nigel Robot went to go and interview him, um, and he said, well, in a way, I'm partly to thank for the 2009 championships because, you know, I helped um, sort the Mercedes engines. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, McLaren had a, a veto right, um, and they could easily have, have stopped us having the engine. Or, in fact, it was McLaren who proposed we had the engine. So um, I think it, it was a tale of his time in that you know, there was a dreadful economic crisis. Formula One was feeling the effect of that. And also there was uh, FOTA had been formed, which was a sort of brotherhood of teams, which was pretty strong at the time, and they were supporting each other. So. Undoubtedly, um, McLaren um, made a fair contribution to our success that year. Something which Ron Dennis does never lets us forget, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, nor what? Uh, nor Martin Whitmarsh actually through the uh, pages. Yeah, of perhaps. Yeah, Ron says it in slightly different words. I, I, I can imagine. I Martin, can imagine. But, uh, but to their credit, they did. They did um, in very difficult times. They did uh, concede the exclusivity they had. And um, it was partly logistical that we chose the Mercedes engine, but also the, the tendency at Ferrari was to give customers the previous year's engine, whereas we knew from Mercedes, uh, I think they were supplying Force India at that time, uh, we knew that they 
we're giving the same engine to their customers as McLaren were getting. I mean, McLaren may well have may well have had a few developments, but it was fundamentally the same. We had uh, some mismatch issues. Uh, the gearbox, um, the output shaft, uh, and the crank was higher on the Mercedes, so we had to lift the gearbox. So the gearbox was stuck up in the air. It was, I mean, but that was by as much as two centimeters or something, wasn't it? Which yeah, doesn't sound a lot in the wider world, but in Formula One, you're always talking about yeah, microns I know, and millimeters. You know, we were, we were, we were sweating blood to sort of lower the center of gravity half a mil here and there, and then we had no choice but than but to stick the the gearbox up, uh, as you say, probably around two centimeters. I can't remember the exact number. It's substantial. Um, but just going back a step, I think one of the great things about uh, that period was how well everybody worked and I think looking back on it the the key was to always keep the staff informed of where we were and what was going on so every week we had a staff briefing of course there were some things we couldn't tell them because um, uh, you know like you know like the details of our our um, uh, an investor that uh, a fraudulent investor. There's no point in worrying the staff about those things, uh, but we did keep them informed of what was going on. And I, I was so impressed with the spirit that came, uh, because they knew even if we were able to carry on, that you know a third of them would probably be made redundant, and um, and almost to a man or woman, they just got their heads down. I mean Dunkirk spirit, whatever you want to call it, they just got their heads down and worked so hard to get on and and create that car. And there were only one or two people who said, this is not for me, um, which out of a staff of 700 is tremendous. Uh, and in fact, as the team regrew in later years, some of those people who were made redundant came back again. And, um, and they all enjoyed the success of the team. Nick and I had many letters and notes from people who we'd had to make redundant in order for the team to survive writers and say, I still feel proud of being a part of it, um, which we were proud of them as well. But it was tremendous spirit. It's something which uh, I'll never forget because it was such a uh, inspiring time in many ways in what was a very, very difficult period. And once you'd, you know, you had this hugely difficult period, you got to the first test and, you know, you're talking about sandbagging just there, Nick. When did you first think, Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> this might just work quite well. Did, was it at that first test, or was it late? Did, you know, even then, did you think, well, the other teams must be sandbagging? Well, you know, when when did it first click? Well, I, I think there was a build-up to it, and that during a year, um, the objective for two thousand nine had been to reduce downforce by fifty percent. So, when the technical groups all sat down and uh, their objective was to reduce downforce by 50%. I think the rules as we originally conceived them went a fair way towards that. Um, but it became clear to me during 2008 that we were uh, exceeding the, the objective by some margin. Now, I was the chairman of, of uh, the technical group, and I think it was around August of that, that year I said to the technical group, in fact, said to some team principals in a meeting, we are exceeding our targets. Do we want to revise, review the rules again? Or are you all prepared to accept the consequences of not meeting the targets? 
which we don't know what the consequences will be, but we're certainly exceeding the targets. And I'm sure looking around this room, uh, there's going to be many people who know that they're exceeding what was supposed to be the objective for 2009. And nobody was interested. Nobody said... Um, they all thought I was uh, exaggerating for whatever motive, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I was shot down in flames and everyone carried on. Then we started to hear numbers from other teams, which is the nature of Formula 1. People are struggling, they can't get the downforce, etc. And we were, we were doing okay. Then the first test happened, which we didn't attend. And the lap times were nowhere near as good as we thought they should be. So we knew that we had a pretty good car on our hands. And that was another thing that, thing that I think motivated the troops, that we had a feeling the car would be competitive. Um, and the first time Jensen, I think, drove it around Silverson South, he, uh, he said, this is, you know, this feels pretty good. Um, I remember at Barcelona, we started the test and it was the last, did we do two tests? One test or two tests? One test. We did one test before the season started. First day of Barcelona, he goes out and does five laps or whatever. And we were a bit late starting because we were pretty difficult getting organized with what we had to do. And everyone else had been running and they'd been running there the previous week. And he came in and said, oh, balance is dreadful. You know, I've got too much understeer, this, that and the other. And Andrew Shovelin said, well, that's interesting. You're second quickest. He says, shut up. You know, you don't be stupid. The car's terrible. And then, as we started to get the car tuned in, uh, I think on the last couple of days we were quickest, and we were always carrying fuel. Um, we realized we had a pretty good car on our hand, and the last thing we needed to do was to aggravate uh, the situation, because there was this controversy starting then about the diffuser designs. The last thing we needed to do was to aggravate the situation by taking the fuel out and, and going fast. So that was where we were. I think the thing, the thing that I, I found, you know, looking back, extraordinary is that, you know, when you're kind of living through this, you know, I wouldn't say it wasn't enjoyable because it was obviously immensely enjoyable in one way, but you were so preoccupied with the survival of the team that, you know, you were just running day by day. And, you know, I remember uh, on one occasion having a, uh, a, a conversation with, with Ross and one morning he, he said to me, uh, this doesn't do much for your libido, does it? And, uh, you know, and, and that, that was how it was. I mean, literally, it was so stressful. Um, I, I suppose sort of, you know, being quick and winning races obviously was the most important thing, but it, it was almost secondary to just making it day to day and but keeping everyone employed. And, and, and every day, I mean, we had so little money. Um, you know, my job, you know, to, to, to run a weekend was about a million pounds. So the task was, you know, Every weekend, we had to, you know, raise a million pounds somehow. And you, you probably noticed through the, the course of 2009, the sponsors on the car changed, you know, almost week by week. And it was like selling flowers. I mean, it was just what what can we get in? And we would be doing deals, you know, in the two weeks running up to a race. And we had, you know, Canon in Singapore as a one-off, and uh, obviously Virgin, uh, you know, in, in various guises all the way through the year, and different sponsors in in Brazil. But it was literally hand to mouth. And you know, I don't think, you know. Th that there was no time to sort of sit back and reflect on the strategy or uh, you know what was going to happen next because there was always a priority for the following day or the following weekend and uh, you know we had some 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 great times and great parties and what have you but it was always on to the next thing of how are we going to keep this thing going and you know we knew the others would catch up you know because we 
we were eking out what we had so sparingly and with the resources that Ferrari had and Red Bull had and McLaren had, you know, it was inevitable they were going to catch up. So, you know, it was it was a real hand-to-mouth existence, which, uh, you know, I think kept us uh, awake, you know, 24 hours a day. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the bizarre things I remember was... Um, you know, during the, uh, the the Monaco Grand Prix, when the guys were uh, first and second, I was in the uh, the race office upstairs and actually you know, had a nap. I haven't told Ross this, but uh, had a nap during the course of the race. But we were so goddamn tired, you know, from trying to keep this thing going that uh, I was kind of woken up and told, you know, you better get down onto the podium. We've won. And you're, we, we've won. And, uh, I was so exhausted. Down the pit straight. Absolutely. Um, now, I, we have got some questions here um, from the motoring committee at the Royal Automobile Club. Um, and, Ross, you touched on it just there. Um, this comes from Chris Anderson. Um, and I should actually say at this juncture that in, in future talk shows, you will be able to ask questions yourselves. So watch out for that. Um, but for now, Chris Anderson is talking about the, the loophole in regulations. They allowed the double diffuser, uh, which was missed by most of the other teams. I think it was Toyota and Williams who had it as well. Um, how important was this? Um, if I could just preface that with what is a double diffuser for, for us who are not engineers or designers or aerodynamicists? And then how much difference did it make? Would you have won without it? Um, I thought you might ask that. And I, I've got... I've almost got to go back through my notes to remember the exact interpretation because basically it 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 related to continuous surfaces and what was a continuous surface and and the idea was that um under the new low downforce version the the height of the diffuser was controlled but by having another diffuser and allowing the pressure from that diffuser to connect to the lower diffuser you could get more performance out of the car um and in fact, it was a Japanese engineer who, who came up with the idea because we were running, um, in 2008, we were running a, a wind tunnel, two wind tunnel programs in the UK and a wind tunnel program in Japan. And one of the Japanese engineers um, had come along with this concept and said, uh, can we do this? And of course, we looked at it and after a lot of debate decided it was uh, doable um, and I think that was about the time that I started to to raise the point with the working groups that maybe we should be looking at um, uh, tightening up the regulations and uh, you know if it had gone further then probably a double diffuser would have been stopped because I assumed we weren't the only ones doing it as it turned out w Williams and Toyota were also doing it so <coughs> but coming along in August for instance, the gearboxes is pretty much uh, conceived by then as being built and so on. So we had a double diffuser, but I wouldn't say it was totally optimized around the car. It came along too late for us to do a fully optimized car. And, you know, one of, I remember one of the arguments some of the other teams were making, oh, will you design the car around it? We, never, we didn't, in fact, because we'd already designed the car when we had the idea. So that came along quite late. But... Um, it was pretty important at the beginning of the season, but let's not forget Williams had it and Toyota had it and they weren't winning races. So, I mean, we had a pretty good car um, and the double diffuser was definitely the icing on the cake and um, you know, enabled us to uh, certainly get a lead and then Red Bull did it with all their resources and uh, Adrian's pretty smart cookie and they got onto it and, of course, by the end of the year, 
they caught up or maybe even were quicker than we were. But um, it was a pretty, pretty important element. And pretty, you know, in amongst all the battles we were having, we then had a legal battle about the legality of the diffuser. And of course, that went to appeal. It was protested. Stewards kicked it out, went to appeal. If the appeal court had upheld the protest, we might be in a very different position today because we would have lost the um, points from potentially lost the points of that season up until that point when the appeal happened. So um, it was pretty fraught. So along with all the other aggro we had, we had this fight going on about the the double diffuser. But um, interesting times. It, it, I mean, it is amazing to to think back to all. It is you know th there have been books written about it, of, of course, but it's it it is sort of a, it's a thriller, isn't it? Um, I'm just gonna uh, sorry, just quickly. The, you mentioned the Japanese engineer. Was that a Super Aguri one, or was that a Honda engineer? Can you remember? That, that was a Honda, a Honda engineer. It was one that was working in the uh, facility in Japan. So, okay. Um, so it's another image here, and this is post race in Australia. Um, by this time, you knew the car was quick um, from testing, and it, amazingly, during testing, it was also really reliable as well, which you which you mentioned as well. Um, was this could you believe what you were seeing when you know your 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 cars came into the pit lane after the race, having having won, had come first and second? I mean, just try and talk me through some of the emotions from from both of you who you know who were there and you'd had such an awful winter and beginning of the year, and then for this to happen in, in Australia. I think for me, when it <coughs> really dawned was um, was qualifying in Australia. You know, the the, the testing was one thing, and then uh, you know the um, uh, on the Saturday. Uh, we were, you know, first and second, and you remember there was a big rigmarole as well because Richard Branson, uh, you know, came to the uh, the, the the event, and uh, in fact, uh, I'd had a late night with him on the Saturday night, and so by the time we got to the Sunday, I think we were pretty much running on empty, and you know there was huge emotion as well in that you know in parallel with the, uh, uh, you know, I arrived in Australia on the um, uh, the Thursday morning, and then we were up till. I think 2 a.m. the following morning with the steward's inquiry, if I remember rightly. Uh, and then for my sort of sponsorship hat on, uh, it was a late night with, uh, with Branson on the Saturday night as well. So, I mean, it was almost a, just a huge relief and an outpouring of emotion because the previous week we'd, uh, you know, we'd had to let go, um, you know, 40% of the team. So in parallel with all of this, I mean, there was the emotion of, you know, letting people go who, you know, had put in great service and, you know, thankfully a lot of them are back with the team now. Um, so I think, you know, by the end of the race, I, I remember, uh, I think both Ross and I were in uh, in tears. It was just a huge sort of emotional, oh my laws, you know, from a position on the 28th of November the previous year, almost four months later, we've gone from, you know, complete disaster, we're going to have to shut down to, you know, first and second in the first Grand Prix by by a margin. Um, it was It was surreal. I mean, it's it it is an absolutely incredible. Sorry, so I keep saying that, but you know, the the more we talk about it, um, now so over the over the run of the next seven races, you won six of them, um, Vettel taking one win. Um, the uh, there was then sort of a bit of different form which we'll come to, but could you but could you believe what was going on? I mean, you know, even when you look at some of the most successful years with Michael at Ferrari and you know the number of races he won, and looking at Hamilton at the moment, I mean. That's not even with the sort of the, the previous four months they'd had. I mean, Ross, you had so much experience of winning races and winning championships. Could 
I guess it was just business as usual once you got into it, or was it not? Was it? Did you just have to keep pinching yourself that this was? Well, I think it was pretty special because of the circumstances led up to it. I mean, the, the sort of uh, extreme of emotions. It was. It was a very special period. Um, I think, you know, you win races because you've done a good job, and perhaps other people have done a bad job. And that was a year where, quite frankly, a number of key teams, Ferrari, McLaren. Um, they got it wrong, you know. They they didn't um, they didn't get on top of the new regulations as quickly as uh, or as well as they should have done, and so they all took you know half a year to get themselves sorted out, and so there was just this perfect storm in that we had a, a very good car, we got on top of the regulations, we've seen the interpretation that was good for us, we had a team that was buzzing because everyone had had really worked so hard and uh, so committed. Um, two drivers that couldn't believe their luck, uh, and they were really driving very well. So, I mean, it, it was a perfect storm in our favour. Um, everyone else seemed to be off balance. We were on top of the job. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty special first half of the year. And... Uh, um, it's just this extreme ex- extremity of emotions that, that, as Nick said, we went from November, close the, you know, turn the lights off as you walk out the door, to, to um, you know, March time, April, beginning of the season, winning races. So it's uh, very, very special. Um, I'm going to just move on to another couple of photos here. Um, the Belgian Grand Prix, this I think in between... Uh, Rubens's two wins that year. Um, the second half of the year was much tougher. The reason why I've pulled these out is um, obviously Rubens' car on the left uh, with fire extinguishers on it in the pit lane and um, the McLaren mechanics helping again. Um, and then Jensen out after a crash. I think it was very early in the Grand Prix, wasn't it? Was it first lap, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken? How was the red dip in form or was it other teams catching up? Was it Jensen stumbling a bit with the pressure of the World Championship? What? What can sort of explain the second half of the year? Was it lack of development or...? I think you said it all, actually. I mean, there was lack of development because we didn't have the funding. And uh, so, you know, there was some modest work going on, but there certainly wasn't the funding to to really um, uh, develop the car properly. Um, I think you get, you, you know, you get these little blips anyway. Uh, and I'd been fortunate in having experienced before, just knew we kept our head down and kept everyone focused, made sure that uh, people didn't get too nervous about what was going on, then we could we could succeed. For sure, Jensen, I think, felt the pressure in the middle of the year. It was his championship to lose, and, and he had a few events, a few races that were pretty lackluster. He had uh, a crash. But, you know, you know they're going to come. It's very rare, even in great years, that you have... You know, 15, 16, 17 races that all run perfectly. I know I've, there have been occasions, but it's pretty rare. You know, normally, you've got to be prepared. And I think with having experienced it, I was able to convey that to the team. Look, this is fabulous, but we've got to be prepared for when we have a bit of a dip or when we have a problem. Just keep working hard. Just focus on what you've been doing. You've proven you can do it. And then it will come out the other side. Um, and um, we did. I think we won Monza. Uh, 
You've got less. I've got some here actually. Valencia, Valencia. and Monza. Yeah, yeah here we go. Yeah. Which were sort of, yeah, they were pretty vital later in the year to re to revive faith and confidence in the team. And I don't think, uh, if I remember rightly, no one believed that Rubens was fit enough to get to the end in Valencia, wasn't it? If you remember, it was an incredibly hot day, wasn't it? And I think uh, Jock Clear did the most wonderful job just kind of coaxing him through the last few laps because I think uh, Rubens was uh, was was uh, worn out by that stage. It was a boiling hot day and, uh, you know, Jock did a wonderful school teacher job keeping him going. But uh, Rubens did a great job at the end of the year and uh, uh, obviously Monza was, uh, was special as well. Yeah. So... Um, was there a sort of a, was there a wry smile from you, Ross, with obviously you know, your time at Ferrari and and that coming at Monza, or did, did that not even cross your mind? Uh, <laughs> your, your well, Monza is a very <laughs> special place to win a race. Very special for me. Very special for Rubens, because I mean he'd been at Ferrari as well, and there's just huge passion at Monza, you know. The, and I think because it was Rubens, and maybe because I'd been involved with Ferrari and left Ferrari, and good terms of fans were fantastic. I mean, everyone. That was a nice thing about 2009. Everyone seemed to enjoy the success. It's a bit like Leicester City in the Premiership. Everyone just seemed to enjoy our success. Uh, yeah, we didn't have um, that yeah, any real negativism from any of the uh, yeah, e even the e yeah, even the other teams, especially the you know the the working part of the teams. There may have been the odd team principal there and there who had a gripe with us, but I remember I think. Um, was it one of the races where Rubens won? The whole pit, the whole pits, everybody's pit crew was out in the pits cheering him as he came through the, came through the pits, uh, and that that was a lot to do with Rubens. But I think, yeah, everyone enjoyed our success, um, certainly at, at working level, and uh, everyone, yeah, it was it was a great story. So, um, but in that yeah in that season we had a little revival in the second half, which kept us going long enough to, to get the job done. Um, I'm just going to move on to, to one more. We're, we're running short of time. Um, and there's sort of so much that we haven't covered, but I think this photo here is a great one of you with Jensen um, having just clinched the title. Um, in, in terms of your, your career's work, both of you, I'll come to you, Nick, first. Um, where, where does this experience rate? It's, surely it's near or if not the top. And then the same question to Ross as well with you know your time at Benetton, Ferrari, um, Braun and then Mercedes. Where, where is this? Oh, it, it's clearly you know well up there. I mean, it was very different from things I'd experienced before. I mean, um, you know, I'd, I'd been at Aston Martin for a long time and um, you know rescued that a couple of times from uh, uh, pretty difficult situations. Uh, we had some great achievements at Ford uh, in terms of some some great products and what have you. But I think in terms of you know really taking something from the ashes, this was this was up there. And I think Ross has you know, touched on it a couple of times. It was. The relationship between everyone within the team. I mean, Jensen and I had gone back a long way, and there'd been lots and lots of hard times, and you know, cajoling him along, uh, you know, through 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008 was really tough work, and you know, this was this was payback time, and uh, it didn't matter whether you were a gearbox fitter, a driver. Um, everyone had great times and everyone was really in it together um, and we kind of walked the talk I mean we had no money whatsoever as uh, as I've said before and you know I, I remember um, 
at the, the Valencia Grand Prix, we, we won the race. And then, you know, Ross and I were in seats 34A and B at the back of an EasyJet flight to Luton with all the fans. And it was great. And we arrived back at Luton Airport at about three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, the, 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 the fans on the plane couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, you guys were just, you know, winning the Grand Prix and now you're with us. Uh, How long know. did it take them to realise that they just sat down next to, to, to you two? Oh not well. We 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 got um, mobbed in the airport because you know you're in the you're in the easy jet queue. It was really good fun, as Nick said. It was fabulous time, and so everybody seemed to enjoy the success. And um, yeah, and it wasn't intentional. I mean, if you if you wanted to to structure a sort of um, a PR campaign, you'd send your your executives off to travel easy jet because that would look really cool. But that was necessity. It wasn't it wasn't an intended strategy. But it was actually really good fun. I mean, we were riding a wave, and uh, it, it was really good fun to to get close to the fans, talk to the fans. They buy you a drink, or they want to buy you a drink. You have to be careful; far too much to drink. But anyway, uh, they it was a really great experience, and all part of the whole thing. I, I think what was yeah, the the exciting bit was really a lot of stuff that people don't see in that, that there was all this racing stuff going on but you know through the year you know we knew we couldn't continue like this i mean it wasn't going to continue like that there were two you know relatively ordinary blokes who had inherited this formula 1 team because there was no alternative but what was going to come next so running in parallel with all of this was you know well 2009's grace but you know, there was a big risk that we were going to go bust, you know, at the end of the 2009 season. And so, you know, we had to find another solution. And obviously, as we did, uh, you know, better on the track, people became more attracted to the team and, uh, you know, fortunate enough to have uh, a few people who wanted to uh, to invest in the team. But, you know, there were several stories running in parallel. And, you know, towards the end, uh, obviously, the uh, the relationship with, uh, with Mercedes-Benz, uh, you know, we managed to hit a home run with uh, with Petronas as um, as sponsors. Uh, obviously, a separate story there of uh, you know the hiring of, uh, of of Michael, which started off from what I remember as a discussion in a nightclub, didn't it? So, you know, we were Ross and I were uh, you know, dancing on the floor, and Michael was there, and it was hey Ross, why aren't you going to have a discussion with him? See if he uh, see if he fancies to go at this for next year. And of course he of course he did. But there were so many so, things so, running. So, so, all in, so, uh, absolutely, that's where, where the conversation started, wasn't it? Absolutely amazing. So uh, finally, uh, Ross, just great. Where, where does it? I mean, so, you know, you had so much success at Ferrari with Michael and success at Benetton again with Michael, but. Your name was on the your name was on the lid, as it were, with this one and all the experience. D does this outweigh them? Um, I mean, first of all, yeah, the, the, my name was on the car, which was was uh, which was mildly embarrassing, but actually, I was extremely proud of. And and it was the idea of the management team, Nick and the other people, in that you know, we had a management group as well as the normal management uh, who had been the who had been the nucleus of of um the team surviving and uh, and we were all shareholders and we lo kicked around lots of names to the team and eventually i say to my mild embarrassment but i was very proud of it the others suggested we should call it braun gp and um so that that was a great honor um and i think with everything else that went on with uh you know, the fact we rescued the team, the fact we, we won the championship with no money, the fact we then were able to 
um, acquire Mercedes as the investors and uh, holders of the team and the fact that's now gone on to such great success. I think one would have to say this is the pinnacle of my career, so far anyway. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Uh, but I have been lucky in having some very special, very special times. The first drivers' championship for Ferrari for a long time. Um, my relationship with Michael was very, very special. So I don't want to uh, to um, uh, undermine that. But I say just all the events that surrounded this. Um, you know, if you'd said to me 18 months earlier, you're going to be um, you're going to be owner of a team. And you're going to win the world championships, you know, you'd say crazy. You know, there was some books have been written, as you said, but also we had some approaches for films to be written. And it was this thing, well, this script wouldn't be believed if it wasn't true, you know, because it just couldn't happen. Couldn't happen that a team in those circumstances would win the world championship. It would just seem to, uh, it just seemed like a fantasy. So it was, it was, um, that's a long way of saying, yes, it was a pinnacle of my career. I must admit, I don't think I can do a better note to end on myself, so I think we should should stop there. But there was a phrase that you used earlier, and I've got it in my notes here, um, and I'd, but I hadn't even used it, and it's just funny, and I, and I called it the perfect storm, and I think 2009 was the most wonderful perfect storm. Um, both of you, thank you so much for coming down here and, and joining me for such a long time and giving so many amazing anecdotes to, to that incredible... Yeah, um, thank you both, and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Okay, thank you. Yeah. thank you. We'll be back next month with another Royal Automobile Club talk show, and we'll see you then. Goodbye for now. <laughs>